0: Good morning everyone, good morning. it's good to be with you as always and it is my pleasure and my privilege to open God's Word for you. And we've come to the end of our mini-series on life in the church, on the relational side of, of life in the church and before I return to going back through the Gospel of Mark, just going to spend one Sunday looking at Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And this is an unusual psalm in the sense that it gives us a lot of background, or rather Scripture gives us a lot of background to this psalm, far more than we have for most psalms. And we find That background in 2 Samuel 11, you can turn there if you want. We won't spend too much time there, but you can turn there if you'd like. 2 Samuel 11, and I wish we had the time to read through all of it, because it really is uh, a powerful experience, and I'd encourage you to even do it this week. Read through the story in 2 Samuel, and then go straight from there and read Psalm 51. But what I'll do is I'm going to summarize the story from 2 Samuel, and then we'll go to Psalm 51. Here's what's happening King David has his army out fighting a battle, but he has not gone with them. He has stayed home in Jerusalem. He's wandering around on the roof of his palace, and from the roof, he sees a very beautiful woman bathing. He asks about her. He learns that her name is Bathsheba and that her husband is in his army and is away with his troops in battle. So knowing that her husband isn't around, he sends for her. She comes to him and he sleeps with her. But then she gets pregnant and David panics Uh uh-oh, she's pregnant, and her husband is away. Her husband's going to piece this together. Her husband's going to realize that this child cannot be his. So he brings her husband Uriah back from the battlefield, supposedly just to bring back a report of how things are going on the battlefield. And he has these hopes, right, that while the husband is home he'll go and spend a night with his wife and then there'll be no question in a few months time as to whose child this might be everyone will just assume including uriah himself that it is uriah's son, uriah's child but uriah doesn't go home uriah doesn't go home uriah's mindset is it's not right for me to go home and enjoy the comforts of home while my fellow soldiers are in tents out on the battlefield. No, I'll just stay here in some servants' quarters type area at the palace and I'll return back to my fellow soldiers as soon as possible. So David... And thinks, okay, well, let me have him over for a meal and let me get him drunk. Perhaps when he's drunk and not quite in his right mind, he won't stick to this resolve that he has, that he should not return home, that that's not not fair to his fellow soldiers. So David gets him drunk, but he doesn't go home. Even still, he doesn't go home. So David now thinks, okay, well, let me send him back to battle. And then David gives his general orders to ensure that this man, Uriah, is placed on the front lines. And David gives his general orders to be tactically foolish, to make sure that the soldiers and, uh, fighting on the front lines are killed. David gives his general that order to make sure that Uriah dies and that therefore there's nobody to ask the question, whose child is this? So that David's sin will not be exposed. And the text in Second Samuel tells us that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And God then sent the prophet Nathan to confront him. And we've, in the last few weeks, we've talked about the role that God has for, for us in pointing out sin to others and calling them to repentance And how God can use us in the lives of others to restore them. This is a very tangible example of that. God sends his prophet Nathan to confront David, King David, in his sin. This morning we're going to be thinking about how we should respond when we sin. How should we confess our sin to God? I'm going to read the entirety of Psalm 51 now, and then after that we'll walk our way through it section by section. Psalm 51 starts with uh, this description at the top that helps us understand the, the context, the situation in which it was written, that points us to this backstory that I've just shared with you. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins." Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. How should we confess our sin to God? First of all, we must go to God for forgiveness, approaching Him on the basis of His mercy. Verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. David recognizes that his only hope for forgiveness is the merciful character of his God. He makes no other argument. There's no downplaying his sin. There's no excuses, no justifications. There's no, God, forgive me because remember that one time when I killed Goliath? There's no God forgive me on the basis of my godliness in days gone by. No, he cries out, Forgive me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. We see here David's dependence on God. He knows his only hope is God. He knows he needs God's help. He knows God must wash it. He can't do it himself. God must take away his sin. He can't do it himself. And we see David's dependence on God's mercy and grace. He knows that his only hope for receiving God's help is his merciful and kind character. There's nothing he can bring to buy or barter. There's no other argument he has for God's help. Just the merciful character of God. Secondly, own the sinfulness of your sin. Own the sinfulness of your sin. I know my sins David says I see my sin clearly and it is mine I know my transgressions my sin is ever before me my sin is ever before me he might try and get his mind off it he can't and he recognizes that the offense is that, the, that sorry, he recognizes the offense that his sin is against a holy God. Now, this is not to say that his sins are not against others. Of course, adultery and murder are not private sins. Adultery and murder hurts other people in significant ways. David has sinned and sinned greatly against Uriah greatly against Bathsheba. And of course, his abuse of power as a king is really a significant sin against his kingdom, against the very heartbeat of what a good and righteous king should be about. But these sins are not sins just against his fellow man. They're sins against God himself. God is our creator. Our bodies are not our own. Our lives are not our own. We don't get to do with our lives whatever we please. And the people we sin against are people made in God's image. And He is the King over all. He is the standard of right and wrong. He is the lawmaker. He is the judge. Over everyone and everything. My friends, ultimately, all sin is against God. All sin is against God. And most significantly, against God. Think about this. There's a weightiness. Yes, David sinned horribly against Uriah, but he also sinned against who? The King of Kings. The holy, holy, holy God. It's an awful thing to spit in somebody's face. Will you go and spit in the face of the president? Right? We sin, when we sin, we sin against the the one with the highest authority. We sin against God. The most worthy of all beings, we sin against God Himself. Further, in the context of Second Samuel, we see that when da- when Nathan confronts David, actually a lot of his emphasis is not just on what David has done, but on the. The incredible lack of gratitude, the incredible lack uh, of, of, of realizing how much God had given him. His attitude of ingratitude to God for his many blessings, his mindset of needing something more, something outside of what God had already given him. Something outside of the amazing blessings God had already blessed him with made his sin that much more heinous, that much more an example of spitting in God's face. David sinned against God. And David recognized something else here, too, right? He recognized. That although in one sense, right, although in one sense we can highlight how different most of his life was, there's a reason that David is described as a man after God's own heart. This is a a shocking fall. A shocking fall. This is not the way David standardly lived. No, this was normally... Quite a godly man, a, a godly man. David recognizes nonetheless, right, that this was not something that just happened to him out of the out of nowhere. No, David sinned in this awful, heinous way, because like all of us, he was a sinner, he was born a sinner, and sin is inherent. In his very nature, as a fallen human being. Verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Sin has been a part of who I am since the womb, since conception. This is me. I am a sinner. My friends, do you recognize that you are a sinner? You are a sinner. Not just someone who sometimes sins. You are a sinner. You are sinful. You always have been. Sin comes out of you because sin is in you. Do you recognize that? Do you own that? This is another dynamic we need to own about our sin. We can't run from this. If you you try and run from this, your sinful nature runs with you. It's in you. We sin because we are sinners, and as such, we desperately need outside help. We desperately need a savior. recognize that it's it's a scary reality in and of itself it's true recognize it own it thirdly believe and ask for god's forgiving and transforming grace (coughs) i say believe and ask for because it's clear here that that's david's attitude he's asking for these things he's also confident he will receive these things. And we can ask for these things with confidence. If we are Christians, we can ask for these things for, with confidence because God has graciously promised these things to those who are His own, to believers. The one who has seen, has seen his sin turn from it and placed his faith and trust in God's mercy made possible because of Jesus' death on our behalf. Anyone who's done that can ask for these things with confident belief, with faith, because they are things God has promised us. Verse 6, Ask God to teach you integrity. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. My friends, God has no interest in whitewashed tombs. That's an image we see Jesus use in the Gospels. And it refers to people who make sure that everything looks nice on the outside, right? Like these tombs that have been washed white. But what's on the inside of those tombs? Dead man's bones. David went to great lengths to cover his sin. Right? First bringing Uriah back from battle and then having Uriah killed. Awful, awful lens to cover his sin. To hide. God wants him to be honest. God wants him to bring his sin into the light instead of covering it up. God wants David to agree with him about The sinner that he is, and about how desperately he needs God's grace. David tells us in the psalm that God desires this integrity in us, that we see the truth about who we are, and we're honest with ourselves about it, and we're honest with God about it as well. Ask God to wash you clean. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. In this first line here, verse 7, the picture is one of ritual uncleanness. In Old Testament times, when you were ritually unclean, you were unable to enter the tabernacle to worship, and you were not allowed to make contact with others. While you were ritually unclean, You had to remove yourself from normal worship, from normal public life. And hyssop was a plant that was used in a number of the purification rituals done by the priests. Rituals that would remove or purge away your uncleanness so that you could then return to worship, return to normal social life again. David sees here that his sin has made him unclean. His sin has made him unfit for worship, unfit to be around others. His sin is making it impossible for him to come into God's presence and draw close to him. So then, here's the picture. God will clean him thoroughly of his uncleanness, and in so doing, will make it possible for David to have a restored relationship with him. The second line of verse 7 might be one of the most well-known pictures of God's forgiving grace in the whole Bible. we even been saying about it this morning. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Whiter than snow. As white as white can be. Not a spot, not a speck of a spot. Clean, 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 pure, pure, pure. That is how thoroughly David is confident God will remove absolutely every trace of sin in his life. Ask God to restore your joy, verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The idea here is that David has felt the weight of conviction over his sin. To such a degree, it has grieved him deeply. In fact, we could even say he feels shattered. Shattered. Let the bones you have broken. God, you... It feels like you've broken every bone within me, And he's asking here that as God forgives him and restores his relationship with him, he'll feel the relief from that sense of shatteredness and grief. One way this verse could be translated is, let the bones that you have broken dance. That's a beautiful transformation, isn't it? somebody lying on the ground in pain with all their bones broken, to somebody jumping for joy, dancing. Ask God to delete the record of your sin. Delete it. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. It's verse 9. In other words, God, I don't want you to see any of my sins. And when you look at my life, I want you to see no record of my sin. Nothing at all. Please don't look at my sin. Please blot out, delete every last record. Look on me as sinless, please, God. See me as someone without sin. Ask God to give you a pure and steadfast heart. That's verse 10 a pure and steadfast heart. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right or a steadfast spirit within me. We've been saying a lot about the heart over the last few weeks. We've been saying we need to watch over our hearts because out of our hearts, sorry, our hearts, um, our hearts are the wellspring of life and how we live and what we do and what we value flows out of our hearts. And our hearts are our inner man. What we want, what we desire, how we reason, what excites us, what moves us. And When we become Christians, God gives us a new heart. That's one way the Bible speaks about, about this, this, this new heart, is, is as something... In a moment. God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And part of this, but another part of this happens not just in regeneration in that moment as we are born again, but the Bible also speaks of a of a progressive changing of our hearts, a progressive sanctification a lifelong process that is only fully realized when we are glorified and when we are with Jesus forever. So David prays, create that new heart within me, please God, a pure and clean heart that loves and lives for what it should love and live for, that isn't tainted with any sinful desires. And he asks that it would be steadfast. In other words, that he would constantly love and live for the right things. Not hot and cold. Not on and off. Living for God today and then pursuing sin tomorrow. See, my friends, true confession of sin. If we really see the sinfulness of our sin, we don't just ask for forgiveness for it and then return to it tomorrow. Our heart's longing is that we would would not return to that sin. And the way that we don't return to that sin is by having a pure heart. And a steadfastly pure heart. So that I don't just turn away from that sin for a day or two, but I turn from that sin forever. Ask God also for a restored relationship and for Him to continue to work through you. It's verse 11. This is a slightly harder verse to understand because we need to keep a bit more background in mind and a bit more understanding of the storyline of the Bible in order to understand what David is referring to here. The verse reads, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now in New Testament times, um, since Jesus returned to heaven after his time here on earth, believers now have a new kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit. He lives in every Christian, and the Bible even refers to us as the temple of God because the Holy Spirit is within us. The presence of God is within us. And we can't lose the Holy Spirit. This this verse is not talking about the possibility of losing your salvation, of the Holy Spirit coming in you, regenerating you, making you born again, and then one day just leaving. The Bible doesn't, doesn't talk about that as a possibility. No, the Bible is clear, in fact, that having the Holy Spirit within us is intended to encourage us, because it is a guarantee of us belonging to God and having a future with Him. But in the Old Testament, we mostly see the Holy Spirit spoken of in the sense of empowering someone to fulfill a specific, special task that God intends for them to do. You might remember us uh, speaking about this at the beginning of this series on the Gospel of Mark. This is where we get this idea of a messiah or an anointed one someone selected and empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill a special job for God and as king David was empowered by the Holy Spirit to be king so his plea here is please God don't take your special presence away from me don't take away the empowering and the privilege of serving you in this special way. If we would translate that into New Testament times, our current times, and our lives, we might ask, please God, don't let my sin create a distance between us so that I don't feel close to you or able to draw near to you in prayer. And please God, don't let my sin be a reason for you to no longer work through me in ministry to others i want to experience and continue to experience a close relationship with you and i want to be used by you in the lives of others we see david asked god for a love for him that flows into a life that honors him. That's verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing or eager, that word could be translated eager, spirit. Whenever we get caught up in sin, we've done so because of what's going on in our hearts. Whenever we get caught up in sin, we've done so because we found something else To be more worthwhile, more fulfilling than God himself. We've lost our first love, as the New Testament puts it. David asks here for God to restore restore the joy he had in his salvation. The joy he had in God's mercy to him. God's relationship with him. And this is key. How do we have a steadfast heart, as we looked at earlier. How do we have a heart that remains true, that that remains on course? How do we walk with God with consistency? God upholds us, we see here. He keeps us on track with a willing or eager spirit, passionate, excited. He keeps us on track with a love for Him. And a joy in living for him don't forget this my friends ultimately if we want to turn from our sin and walk with god with any kind of longevity with any kind of consistency we need to cultivate and pray for a love for god a love for god that then flows out into a life of obedience this isn't just a matter of let me Let me pull myself up by my bootstraps let me try harder let me let me work more there needs to be a fuel that empowers you and that fuel is a love for god and we see that actually play out in the next few verses fourthly we need to respond to god's grace from the heart we need to respond to god's grace from the heart verse 13 says Okay, and now, at this point, having these requests answered, having God, having knowing God's forgiveness, having received God's forgiveness, having his relationship with God restored, David goes on, verse 13. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Because of this, this flows forth. Because of what you've done for me, here is my response. David says here, God, if you show me mercy and forgiveness for this sin, For a sin as great as this, if you show me mercy and forgiveness, I'll be so blown away, I'll tell everyone about it. I'll seek out transgressors, I'll seek out people turning from you, rebelling against you, and I'll go after them and I'll tell them, there is forgiveness in God. You might might have despaired that you could be forgiven, that your relationship with God could be restored. I'm going to tell you. God forgives. God is merciful. There is forgiveness with Him. And they'll repent, God. And they'll come to you for mercy. My friends, this is where evangelism and discipleship comes from. I've been forgiven. I've been shown mercy. I've been shown grace. Let me point you to my merciful, gracious God. If you don't know him, let me tell you about him. And if you do know him, let me tell you more about him. And this is where worship comes from. I'm so moved by what God's done for me, how could I not sing about it? The Christian life, my friends, it all comes from this. It all comes from knowing we are great sinners and being amazed at our great Savior. Remember, God wants your heart, not merely external religion. That's verses 16 and 17. And this is an easy, easy, easy trap to fall into. We try to fix things between us and God by doing some good deeds, by upping our religious activity. But hear me very clearly. You cannot pay God. For your sins, there is no salvation by works. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. That would, God, if it was as easy as that, I would just do it. I go bring you some some animal sacrifices. If you were going to be pleased by that, I could do that. But David knows his problem's way bigger than that. And today, right, we don't have a sacrificial system today, so we might not think exactly along those lines, but we slip into similar traps, similar ways of thinking. You can't fix the rift between you and God by tending church more often or by Fasting, or by attending an all night prayer meeting, or by uh, beginning to serve more in the church, or by beginning to give more in the offering plate. Those things don't fix anything. They don't clean you, they don't take away your sin. You can't pay your debts. Good deeds and religious activity will not fix the problem. What will? Verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We're talking here of seeing the sinfulness of your sin, seeing your need for forgiveness, your unworthiness for forgiveness, genuine sorrow over your sin because of a desire to honor and please God, you recognize you can't save yourself, you can't fix things yourself, so you go to your merciful God and put all your hope in Him for your forgiveness and salvation. All your hope is in His mercy and grace. We're back at verse 1, aren't we? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Religious activities and and good deeds do have their place. They do. When they flow out of an amazement and gratitude at God's mercy to you when they are expressions of love for God and joy and thankfulness in the salvation He has already provided you. God wants your heart, not just externals. He wants your humble and complete dependence on Him for mercy. And He wants a life of worship and obedience that is a response and overflow to His mercy. Lastly, we see in this Psalm, aim for a God-honoring future dependent on God's blessing. We see here, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Here, David asks for God's blessing on his people And looks forward to a time when his people will offer the right type of sacrifices. The right type of worship to God. Worship according to the heartbeat of this psalm. Sacrifices offered from hearts that know their need for God's mercy. And are responding to that mercy. But think about this. How bold is this request? I mean, this is this is in the same psalm where David's basically approaching God and saying, I, the adulterer and murderer, I ask that you do good to my people. That you build up the walls of the city so that it's secure and so that it can withstand outside attack. May things go well for us and go well for us for a long time, please God. Please answer that prayer, God. But doesn't that highlight for us who David knows God to be? He asks God for blessing, not because he's earned it, he knows he hasn't. He asks God for blessing because he knows who God is. God is merciful and gracious. As this verse even says, right? He says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Do good to Zion because God, I know that you love to bless. And David doesn't just want things to go well for his people. He looks ahead and prays and asks for a future time when they are all honoring and worshiping God as they should. There's a God-centeredness to this request. He's asking for God to be glorified and honored amongst his people. And we can pray the same for our families, our church, our city, our nation. Again, not because we deserve it, we don't, but because our God is wonderfully merciful and loves to bless. Now let me say this in in closing. I think many of us here fall into one of two errors in our outlook about our sin. I think some of you may think this psalm doesn't really apply to you. You're a good person in your mind. You definitely are no adulterer or murderer. But well, My friends, hear Jesus from Matthew 5. Matthew 5 verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And verse 21 says, Matthew 5:21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. My guess is that this room is actually full of adulterers and murderers very possibly every one of you, in the eyes of Jesus, adulterers and murderers. My friends, you are all sinners, proper sinners, sinners to the core, sinners from conception, sinners deserving of God's judgment, and you can't fix your sin problem with good deeds or religious acts. All of us must own the sinfulness of our sin, our inability to fix the problem ourselves, and go to God for mercy. All of us. And we will receive it. Now, a second category perhaps is that some of you may may see the seriousness of your sin and you may know that you can't fix it, but you doubt God's mercy. You doubt God's mercy. The fact that God is merciful means exactly that. The fact that God is gracious means exactly that. Here's what I mean. He forgives people who do not deserve it. He forgives people who do not deserve it. And that includes you. If you go to Him, acknowledging your need for mercy, asking for mercy, you will receive it. He will forgive. If you go to heaven. Praise God for his amazing mercy. Amen. Amen. Um, What we're going to do now. We're going to enjoy a time of communion together. Uh, Take the Lord's Supper together. And uh, uh, this is a time for Christians. For those who are born again. For those who have gone to God for mercy and embraced his mercy. This is a time for Christians to remember that God has made provision for their sin. That God has blotted out their sin and deleted any record of sin from their record. But as such, right, as such this is a time that's it's only fitting for true Christians to be a part of this time. So if you if you're not a Christian, please don't participate in this In this, uh, uh, as we take communion, as we take the Lord's Supper together. If you're not born again, please don't participate in this time. But if you are a believer, if you know God's mercy, um, I encourage you now, you can make your way to the table there, uh, on uh, underneath the fan on the side there. And please uh, get both some bread and a cup. And return to your seats and in a few moments we'll we'll share a community together. Thank you. Thank you.